This morning I began a series that I've been excited and working on, dealing with, entitling the entire series, David's Wilderness Years. David's Wilderness Years. A subtitle to it would be The Fashioning of a King. David's Wilderness Years or The Fashioning of a King. I can't tell you for sure how many messages will be in the series as I'm studying through. It's pretty amazing stuff the Lord's given. Friday morning, I spent quite a lot of time on it. And yesterday morning and early and I've and, uh, been working on it. And I, uh, I'm excited by what the Word of God has for us. Let me explain to you what I mean by wilderness years when it comes to David. Um, you would be more familiar with that term used, or if someone said that term, you'd more think about the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. You think about the wilderness wanderings. But David himself went through a time of wilderness, as it were. And uh, the parameters that I have felt the Bible naturally falls to for explaining this begin with Saul, King Saul, when out of jealousy and fear, he turned against David, a loyal servant. And that's in uh, 1 Samuel 18. Starts going in detail about that. Tonight, God willing, as we come in, we'll be in that chapter in detail going into some things tonight. So it starts with that incident where the king, out of jealousy and fear, turns on David and uh, begins to uh, seek his destruction. And it ends, I believe it naturally, scripturally, comes to an ending of those wilderness years. Certainly not an end of God's working in David's life to grow him. But when David is anointed as king in Hebron, right after some of you will recognize this, uh, the events that happened in a city called Ziklag, right after that was happening, uh, King Saul and his son Jonathan die in battle, and then David is brought into, uh, back to the nation of Israel, but in Judea, and he's, he reigns in Hebron and comes back in, and he's there for seven and a half years uh, ruling over over that part of the kingdom. And so David's wilderness years take in that time from when Saul goes after him, King Saul goes after him, to the point where he's anointed as king. And there's a lot happens in there. There's quite a bit of time frame happens in there too. And it's pretty amazing. And I'm telling you, the Lord, of course, the Bible, uh, we know all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. It's profitable for doctrine. So we'll learn some things along that way. It's profitable for proof. It's profitable for correction. And it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. And there'll be certainly a, a large measure of that uh, to help us learn how to follow the Lord because everyone's life at one time or another has wilderness areas in it. Here's a statement I took time to carefully write as I wanted to say it. And I want you to kind of fix this in your mind and it'll serve you well throughout this uh, as we'll be learning about this time period. Um, the throne of David was not established in the palace. It was established in the wilderness. It's a vital thing to remember when you're learning about him. With, uh, <clears throat> God chose David to be king. He was anointed in his father's house by Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 18, the preparation of the wilderness years began. But before that preparation began, David, I believe, was, was prepared for the preparation. And that's what today's, this morning's message is, is being prepared for the preparation. Now, let me tell you something about this. I'm kind of put our mind in what I'm talking about with this. 
we have uh, a school. <clears throat> and uh, we have children come in, and it's not been that many years that we've had their kindergartners coming in. By the way, the younger the age, the more work it is. And the more young age ones you have, the more work it is, for sure. You say, well, it seems like you would have to have more knowledge to teach the upper grades. I didn't say more knowledge. I said more work. And uh, it is from a teaching, teaching perspective. <clears throat> but when they come in, we expect there to be certain things. If someone's going to be going into the first grade, there are certain things they should be able to do. Certain things regarding their letters, certain things regarding numbers, certain things regarding colors and that sort of thing, certain things regarding quantum physics. Okay, maybe not that. Um, <laughs> we expect smart kids, but <laughs> they, uh, uh, but we are seeing if you're listening, but uh, there are certain things that are going along. In, uh, uh, you get in the upper levels of education, they are called prerequisites. Uh, you're going to go in and perhaps, uh, for instance, in our uh, you start getting up uh, through our school, and before they take Algebra 2, anybody guess what they're supposed to take before they take Algebra 2? Algebra 1, all right? And uh, th- with that, so they can learn. Why? Because they need this beginning thing in order to continue and build in this area. Our lives, as God seeks to fashion our lives for His purpose and His glory, and our profitability too, by the way, as God seeks to fashion our lives that way, there's a progression of things. And in David's life, what we're going to see, he had to be prepared for the preparation. As a young man, we're going to see, starting tonight when we go into 1 Samuel 18, that David is subjected to some extreme situations. Serious trials come into his life. And there were some things that were in his life already by the time that he was... A, uh, perhaps a young to middle teenage young man, there were some things already established in his life that had given him the foundation for further preparation. Now, they weren't fully developed. They weren't yet mature. But they were there. They were in place. And boy, that's important to understand. Very important to understand. And uh, God... Uh, it's a strange, we're in a strange culture in a strange time. We think people are not supposed to start showing responsibility. I don't think this, but there's a, there's a cultural phenomenon that it's not really expected of people to start showing responsibility and adult behavior until they hit this so-called magic age of 18. Well, turning 18 or turning 21 does not make you an adult. Believe me, I know many people who have added many decades to those years, markers, and have not yet reached adulthood. In fact, I know many people who aren't even grasping for it. (laughs) And yet, also, I'm glad to know a goodly number that at a young age are trying to be responsible at their age and trying to do as they ought to do, and I'm grateful for all of those. So that's a very good thing. But I'm going to show you some things about preparing for the preparation. And here's the thing about it. Uh, How many of you have, uh, in this room, you have been saved, let's say, 10 years or less? If that's your case, you would raise your hand that you've known the Lord 10 years or less. Don't be bashful. Okay. 10 years or less. All right. All right. right. Good. All right. How many of you, and I know there's going to be a gap between, good number there. How many of us, it's been 20 years or more? 20 years or more. Okay. 30, keep your hands up. 40, keep your hands up. 50, keep your hands up. 60? 60 going once, going twice, going twice, 60 going once, twice, 50, 70, 
80? No? At 50? Yes. <laughs> I like that look. I was like, what are you doing, preacher? <laughs> um, the, at my own peril. But what, what is happening is there, there's a wide range of where we are in, in following the Lord. Now, here's the thing about it. How long you've been saved is not necessarily equivalent to how you've grown in the Lord. And there are setbacks in the Lord also. When I say that, what I mean is, the Bible says that when such time you ought to be teachers, you have become such as have need. And then it goes back to those who are taught the first principles of the oracles of God. And so a person having been to a point where they could have been leading, teaching, helping others, can regress through inattention, through sin, through any myriad of things, they can regress back to a baby state and have to grow again with that. So wherever you are, and you may not fully know where you are, and that's fine, but wherever you are in things, God's going to constantly be preparing you to be prepared. Not only is He going to send things to prepare you, but He's also going to send things to prepare you so you can accept that preparation when it comes. Um, it's kind of interesting. You know, um, I took piano lessons for just a little while. I'm not musically inclined. I have my, my memory in some aspects. My memory works very well. Other aspects, it just ignores me. Um, but there, there's some aspects, and uh, one of which I can memorize. I'd learn a piece of music. I just memorize it really fast. And then that messed up my learning to read because then I'd just start playing by memory and wouldn't be reading anymore, looking at, you know, looking at the notes and that sort of thing. But I'm not musically inclined. I'm not one of these people who can sit down and pick out notes on a piano. Just can't do it at all. But when I was learning piano, the first thing you learned were the notes. You learned what the notes were. You learned the, the, what, what, a, what does a half note look like? What does a quarter note look like? What does a whole note look like? You learned what a rest is. You learned, you learned, what, uh, you learned the scales in. You learned what the treble clef is and the bass clef and those pesky notes that wander in between. And you um, can never stand notes that can't make a decision where they're supposed to be. And this, uh, uh, you, you would learn those things. What, those are the components. You have to learn that. You have to learn those things if you're going to learn to read music and all that. Uh, someone's going to learn to read. Most generally, they'll need to learn their, their alphabet first. And they need to learn uh, A says ah and B says but. If you want to know more how that goes, see uh, Miss Holly or my wife or uh, be, uh, any of these ladies here will help you out along the way. Kelly can help you out with that. Miss Todd can help you out with that. And uh, if you need to work on your phonics. But, the, but you can learn all those things. But you are learning pieces. Now, stay with me a moment. God did that with David. God didn't have the first time David was learning something when he was facing a giant over 10 feet tall. God did not have David the first time he was facing something in his life be when the freedom or slavery of the armies of Israel was dependent on how that battle came out, which is what was dependent on that battle. God didn't have David the first time that he... Uh, had to deal with something was a king being angry and trying to stick him to the wall with a, with a spear. That wasn't the having his brother turn on him, that sort of thing. He had to learn some things so he could learn some things. So let's look at these. 1 Samuel 17, talking about preparation and being prepared. Uh, he learned some lessons. These aren't all of them, but these are some which will be helpful to you. Lesson I put down is number one there. Although it is not the greatest in importance, but it is important. He learned of God's empowering and protection. David learned of God's empowering and protection. I can't tell you how important it's been at different times in 
the life of my wife and I and our, our married life and being in the ministry together to be able to stop and remember what God's done for us. To remember those times when we wondered what the next step would be. To remember those times when you wondered what was coming next or how you were going to do the next thing or how you were going to make it or what, what the next step was going to be and we don't have enough resource and how are we going to do it. But to go back and remember, do you remember when we were like that but God brought us through. He's never abandoned us. He's never forsaken us. And there's a real encouragement in being able to look back and say, you know what? I can't see forward clearly, but I can remember clearly that God's been with me. In the Bible, there was an event like that in a battle. And they were to write on a stone the word Ebenezer. It's a great word. And it means, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And so God has been a help to us to this point and brought us thus far. David learned before he came to fight Goliath, he learned about God's ability to empower him and uh, his uh, and to protect him as well. Um, we don't have the details, but you know where he learned it? He learned it in guarding his father's sheep of all the places. In other words, this, this fellow, this David, who would be king as a boy, he learned something about God while he was doing his chores. Now, the only thing you may have learned by doing chores is you're glad that heaven's a clean place because nobody has to take out the trash. Amen? That's a blessing. But David learned some things. How did he learn it? We don't have details. I would love to have the actual blow-by-blow details because I think this is really a neat thing. But we find out what he remembered back to. Now, you got to remember, he's the older teen when he comes to fight Goliath. So it's not like he's got 30 years of experience to draw from. I've been in this battle and this battle and this battle. He hadn't been in any battles as far as people. In fact, Saul, King Saul, kind of chided him a little and said, you're not able to go against this Philistine. (laughs) To me, it's an amazing statement in and of itself. He said, because thou art but a youth. So there's his reason. You can't fight him. You're just a youth. And he has been a man of war since his youth. So I don't know why I didn't make the connection. I mean, Goliath had started when he was young. Why couldn't David? But anyway, with that to the side, there's an incident that's recorded here in, uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 17 that is, it doesn't give us the details, but David remembers it. Look in verse 37. Whenever he's told he can't go against Goliath, look what he says. Verse 37, David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. So what was he talking about? Well, look in verse 33. You'll see this fun, the, the, the taunt I was talking about. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. Now think about this. He's talking to the king. He says, I I was keeping sheep. Taking care of them out there. He kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear. He said, I had a lion do this and I had a bear do this. I don't know about you. But G.R. Stan, that's not... You know, forget, forget the fiction. Those are not animals you just jump on. 
and go after. You know? Uh, and I don't care what the species of the bear is. It's just you don't mess with them. And took a lamb out of the flock. So they already had possession of it. They grabbed hold of it. And I went out after him. David wasn't jumping between the lion or the bear and trying, ha, ha, trying to scare him away, you know. The old saying about bears, you know, they're more scared of you than you are of them. Okay, I don't know if that would be possible for a bear to be that scared. And I don't believe it anyway. You can find the one who just doesn't care, you know. He didn't read that. And so you got to watch out for those. And uh, he wasn't jumping between the bear and the lion and saying, no, you're not going to get a whoa, back to a bad kitty, back, back to you. Scare them away. They already had it. They already came in, snagged something, took off. Now think about this mindset. And David's like, oh, no, you don't. Come back here. And he goes out and chases them. Now think about the mood, if you will that either a bear or a lion is going to be in if they already have food in their mouth. And somebody's going to try to take it away from them. There's a big difference between deterring a predator who wants to get something and going to take something away from that predator that it already has. Generally considered a bad idea. Alright, so look what happens in verse 35. And I went out after him and smote him. And look and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, so apparently he hit this thing hard enough it drops it drops the lamb. And when it arose against him, you know what that animal's intention was, don't you? It don't care about lamb chops anymore, it's going after David. At that point, he's the he's the focal target of the of the aggression here. And it says, and when he rose against me and spoke his mouth and when he arose against me I caught him by his beard. He wasn't standing off. He wasn't standing off with a high powered rifle. He wasn't hitting it with a broadhead arrow from a distance of a couple hundred yards if you could shoot one that far. But of seventy five yards, hundred yards, whatever. He's that's this is a hand to Paul combat. And he says that I took him by the beard and um I lost him right in the middle of the battle. Hold on, that scared me to death. Where is he? I caught him by his beard, verse 35, and smote him and slew him. Translate that for you. I killed him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he had defied the armies of the living God. David's great confidence was not in his own strength as is indicated by the statement we first read together. It said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. David was being prepared by learning that God had empowered and protected him. David wasn't so foolish as to think, I'm just so tough and I'm just so strong but I went down there and took care of that. Let me tell you how tough I am. He said, I'm going to tell you something. God was with me then. God's going to be with me now. Boy, that's a lesson to learn early. That's the lesson. is learning that God can empower you. 
Empower you. And protect you. Learn that thing as you would. Second lesson in the preparation is, I put this down, David had developed some extremely valuable traits. One is trustworthiness. Think about the word for a minute. We tend to use some words and don't really think what they mean. Trustworthy. You say, somebody is somebody trustworthy. What are we saying? Are they worthy of trust? You either are or you aren't. If you are, then maintain that. Let that be precious to you. Take care of that. Don't lose that. It's valuable. If you're not, then change something, whatever you need to change, to become worthy of trust. Now, there will be some people, if you have been untrustworthy in your history, especially if you've displayed yourself to be, I'm talking to you folks in this room, not some theoretical bad guy out in the parking lot. If you have been untrustworthy, your word cannot be depended on. In time past, there are some people who will never put their trust in you. You're going to have to, you've earned that, and that's a sad reality of life. That's not the issue. The issue is become trustworthy. You start behaving. You know what it is like, a person you can trust. You know what they're like. Now look at me. We're, we're old enough in here. You know what trustworthy behavior is like. You could write it down on a piece of paper and hand it to me. Here's what it's like for someone to be trustworthy. Here's how they act. Here's what they do. Here's what they don't do. You could write it down as easily as I could. You say, well, I don't know how to be trustworthy. Do that. Write it down and do it. Well, preacher, it's not that easy. Please don't use the word can't. Use the word won't if you decide not to. Because you can. Trustworthiness. You say, what? where do you see that in his life? Well, a couple things that I always think is interesting about David. You know, no matter what new responsibility he had, he did not go away from and, and forget his old responsibility. When his father sent him down to check out the battle and check out the three oldest sons and see what was going on in the battle, carry down a present to their captain and such, David, the Bible says about the sheep, because he was taking care of the sheep back here, David left his, the sheep in the hand of a keeper. David didn't just say, oh man, i got to go down the battle. Dad wants me to go down. I get to see the battle and run off and just leave the sheep to whatever happens. Boy, this is so important. Boy, this is so important. People miss the important things because they think they're little. Um, we have responsibility for one thing. He's given another responsibility. He didn't just ditch this and do this. God intends to grow us. The manner in which God grows us is to increase the responsibilities we have. That's considered a privilege when you do it for a king. And so what happened was he took care of what he had and then he goes and he takes the carriage, his father's carriage apparently, and he goes down and he goes to the battle. He doesn't just leave it parked. It says specifically he left his carriage in the hand of a keeper. He made sure his father's stuff was cared for. He made sure his responsibilities were cared for when he's not there. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I love, I'll tell you one thing I really do and I treasure this. I love seeing and, and it's, way, way in the majority of the times it happens around here, I love seeing the fact somebody's going to be going on vacation or something. They're going to be gone a week, two weeks. They sing in the choir. They help with something that goes on on a Sunday. They teach a class. 
They help out with the junior church or something. And you know what they do? They 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 let Brother Tim know. Not just preacher, because I hey, I, I may I may forget before I get to my office. But they let those they're directly involved with. They they let Brother Tim know. Hey, I'm not gonna be there for a choir. I want to let you know for a minute. Uh, they let, if they've got a class, that comes directly to me. Uh, preacher, I'll let you know, my family and I, we're going to be gone. Nah, sometimes illness will happen. You know, you went to bed feeling well, you wake up feeling sick and, and uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I understand that. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about things that we know are coming and uh, plan for. But they let them know. Not, oh, 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 uh, did, did I tell you I wasn't going to be there for my class? And I'm trying to figure out where. No. Uh-uh. I like seeing the fact that people take their responsibilities Seriously. By the way, I, I, I am very concerned as a pastor for people who don't take their responsibility seriously here because I wonder about the condition of them in other places. And uh, because it's just one shows the other. Then the second thing he had, he had a heart for God. By the way, I put this down and, and I believe biblically I can support this. I believe that's the single most important characteristic David had. He realized he had that heart for God before he was needing God to protect him from an angry king. He had developed that heart for God in his time out there with the sheep. In his time as a young man, as a young person, he developed a heart for God. Man, you get that down. Listen, you get it down to where you have a heart for God and God matters to you. I said God matters to you. Himself. It will keep you heading down the right track with all the strange things that will come your way in life. It just keeps bringing you back to the Lord. It just keeps, it keeps, keeps going forward there. You know, Joe's getting at it today, isn't he? And uh, they, he had a heart for God with it. In fact, look in Acts. Don't, don't lose your place. We'll be coming back there in 1 Samuel again. But look in Acts 13. Let me show you something. This is the single most important characteristic. Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, recounting and here some of the uh, Israel's history, says about the Lord, and when He had removed him, that Saul, He raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also He, God, gave testimony and said, I have found David. It's interesting. You find what you're looking for. God was looking for someone with this characteristic. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which will fulfill all my will. What's that little phrase mean? A man after mine own heart. What that means is that David displayed the fact that what God valued, he valued. What God loved, he loved. What God despised, he despised. What it means by a man after God's own heart is not just someone who has learned the details of commandments, although that's part of the process. But what it is is someone who says, by his commandments and by his teaching, what has God revealed that he likes and dislikes? What has he revealed he wants and doesn't want? And I'm looking to know his way, his direction. And uh, it's sort of like with Moses. It says, God showed unto Moses His ways. 
and to the children of Israel his acts. All they saw were the events, the miracles, the acts. But Moses saw the way of God in it. And with David, he had a heart after God. He said, God, if you want it, I want it. I don't know if there's a stronger place that this shows up in his life. And, and, and this is my thought on it, but you may have a different thought. But when David, it was in David's heart, that's the term that's used, to build a, a house unto his God. It was in his heart. His heart, we, we'd say it this way, his heart was set on doing that. He wanted to build the temple for God. That really meant a lot to him. And when he came to God about it, God said to him, you're not allowed to. Then, God said, you're not allowed to because you're a man of war and you've shed much blood. But the wars that David had been involved in were the wars God had sent him to. It seems like that could have been an area where it had been a little confusing. But David's reaction reveals a heart after God. Nowhere does he fuss. He says, okay, I'm not allowed to do that. I'm sure he was disappointed. You can't have your heart set on something and find out you don't get to do it and it not disappoint you. But what is the biblical record of what happened? David is told you can't build this temple. And so what he does, he prepares abundantly before his death. He literally says, I'm not allowed to build it. I'm sure he, I'm sure he felt that. I'm sure he you know, was disappointed. Don't think he wasn't a person. He felt it. But what he chose to do, here's his heart. Okay? God doesn't think I should do this. God wants Solomon to do this. It's not, what do you mean my son's going to do that? I've won the battles. You mean I fight the battles, he gets the glory? You know, there's a lot of human problem could have come in his thinking. But he didn't do that. Instead, he says, okay, God, you want Solomon to do it? Here's David's words. He says, he's yet young and tender in years. He said, he doesn't have experience. He hasn't done all this. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to help him. I'm going to use everything I've accumulated and everything I've learned to help him. Why? Because my God wants him to build the temple, not me. And God, if that's what you want, then I'm going to, I'm not just going to say, okay, you're God, I have to put up with it. He said, I'm going to get in on this. Boy, when things don't go where our plans thought they should go, we have a real opportunity to see how closely our heart follows the heart of God. And so this was probably the most important thing. I believe that his heart shows up in several things you said in the battle. You know, there is, when you have in 1 Samuel here, 17, when you have the battle going on, man, everybody's heard a lot of preaching about that battle, and we should. It's a great thing. But there are more phrases to preach on out of that battle than you can even imagine. And they show the heart of God, uh, a heart after God that David had. Listen to these phrases and listen for the heart of God in it. Whenever David was confronted and ridiculed for, for being there and all that, here's his, his great one. You know this question. He said, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Isn't there a cause for this? Isn't there something we should be doing? What a great thing. that What is that reveals his heart? And other people just see Goliath. And, oh, here's a giant. You know, they're doing all that. And David said, there's a cause. It's bigger than that. And I like this one. He said, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He didn't say, I can whip him. He said, who is he? He's defying the armies of the living God. See, David was seeing beyond just what was obvious to the seeing eye. 
Then what he said to Goliath when he went to fight him. Listen to this statement out of 1 Samuel 17. He said to Goliath, Thou comest to me with a sword, with a spear, with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. My soul, that stir you up. Now how about this about the heart of God? He gave us his reason for going down to that battle. And by the way, you got to love David. After he gets his, his rocks for his sling, puts some in the pouch, he's got the one ready to go. He didn't walk down there and try to get in good position. He ran directly towards Goliath. Not only showed her boldness in God, but it was probably good strategy in that situation too. Come in close fast. <laughs> Don't let him chuck that spear at you, the head of which weighed about 15 pounds. You don't want him getting you off at a distance. He come in close and hit him fast and hard. But here's what he said. He said that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that account, that if you went, if you went to, all, to all the continents of the world that are populated, you would find people who know about that. And still today, these many centuries and even millennia later, uh, you have people who know that there's a God in Israel because of what God did that day. And so what is that? That's the heart of God. Hey, as you're being prepared to be prepared, the single most important thing you and I can have for what God wants to prepare us for is a heart after Him. That allows us to learn. A teacher can teach, but students have to decide if they learn. A teacher can set the best atmosphere for teaching. A teacher can do everything that a teacher can do to provide a drawing for that student or students to learn. But ultimately, whether or not that student learns comes down to the student. I don't care how good the teacher is. So when God's preparing us to be prepared, we need to be prepared in our heart. Then, another lesson, He received the first of three anointings. This was before the incidents we're going to start out about this wilderness years. He received the first of three anointings. David was anointed on three distinct times. The first anointing was at his father's house, in Jesse's house, when he was anointed. And that first anointing established him as king over Israel. He went and did that. The second anointing was in Hebron when all the people came and anointed him to be king over Judah. And he ruled there seven and a half years with that anointing. The third anointing happened when he went to Jerusalem and he became king over all Israel. And that third anointing. And each of these steps of David's life, first establishing him as a king, and then he would go through those wilderness years, and then, and then or, or naming him as a king, and then establishing him on a limited... When, when David first started, he had limited leadership over that nation. And when he started, he had to be anointed for that. It was the next step of his life. And then he went to Jerusalem and, he, and further, God was taking him further. And there was an anointing on his life for that. So he'd already had the first of those three anointings. Then he had to face criticism and opposition from his own family. You know, um, Jesus is called a king after he, he, he's, he's uh, um, compared to David as the, as the throne in the kingdom. One of the things about Jesus we learn in John chapter 1 is that he came unto his own what was the reaction of his own when he came to him, church? Do you know? They received him not. 
Well, David went through something very similar to that. Look quickly in 1 Samuel 17. I told you we'd be coming back here. David goes down to the battle. And his oldest brother, Eliab, big, tall, good-looking fellow. Eliab, if you'll read and see what these words are saying, you will see that there's a mocking tone to it. Eliab's trying to belittle David in front of the other men. David's went down there asking questions. Why isn't somebody fighting him? What's going on here? And Eliab is looking to chide and belittle his, his brother in front of these other warriors. And, and look what happens with this. And uh, verse 28, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. So we don't have to wonder about his motive, do we? And he said, Why camest thou down hither? Now look at the phrasing. And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? He mocks him. Did you leave those few little sheep with? By the way, isn't it something this is always that in, in disparaging his brother, he also he also disparages his father. Who left those few sheep in the wilderness? Now look further, I'm not making up at all. I'm not I'm not assuming anything about Eliab. I know thy pride, the naughtiness of thine heart. You're a naughty little brother. What are you doing down here? Who do you think you are? Prideful thing. I know you. What had Eliab been doing for the 40 days that Goliath had been coming out looking for somebody to fight him? Hiding and running. Now, I'm not putting old Eliab down. You give me a 10-foot Philistine, I'm not looking to go out and box. Okay? So I just, I'm not man to man, I'm not doing it. I'm just telling you, he's making fun of David and he's been running with everybody else and hiding and, and trying to get away from this guy. I know thy pride, the naughtiness in thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And uh, that's when David said that great phrase, is there not a cause? But look at this. You may not see it this way. Sometimes we'll think of preparing as good things put into our life, but sometimes things which are not pleasant are put in for our good. You know, when the Scripture says all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, it does not say all things work together for their good. We do receive good from it, but there's more to it than just us. And God may be working a wider plan through us or, or equipping us to work a wider plan. We have to seek the Lord on that. And so what he did, he had to put up from his own family, his oldest brother, he comes down and he's mocking him, berating him right in front of the other men. That's not good. But he had to go through that. He had to find out. Uh, do you think as king, everybody's going to be happy with David? No. There is no leadership position anywhere where you get to have everybody happy with you. Do you know what you call people, what the proper name is for people who try to make everybody happy? Idiots. It's, uh, you've got to find out what's right, what's best, what you believe is just and true, and stay to, stay to that and try to do it with the right type of spirit. And that is the best you will do in any situation. If you can do these things, we'll be way ahead. And then I saw this. He had to learn from events attached to a verse here in 1 Samuel. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
show you something with this. Look in one verse, verse 21. 16 and verse 21. This is before David fights Goliath. It's a really interesting time frame of what happens with David. Look at verse 21. And David came to Saul and stood before him. And he loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. What had happened here when Saul had so disobeyed the Lord and despised the Word of God that he was no longer... The Spirit of God was taken off of him. And I don't have time to develop this. But you have to understand in the Old Testament at this time, the Spirit of God would come on people and off of people. Now as believers, He comes and dwells inside of us. That's different. There's a distinct, and there's a lot of Bible teaching about that, a distinct difference as we have become ourselves the temple of the Holy Ghost. But as He came on and He went off of people, that Spirit that Saul had known, the Spirit of God, was taken off of him. And an evil spirit troubled him. That evil spirit, when it would come upon him, Saul would just be unreasonable completely. His pride was eating him up. That was really the beginning of the downfall of Saul. In fact, the prophet said, when thou wast little in thine own eyes, did God, not God choose thee? And so he became prideful and all these things happened. And, uh, but what happened was, when this happened, the servants of Saul said, we need to seek out. In fact, they said, command us. It's kind of interesting how they do that. You have that several times. They said, command us to seek out a man who can play cunningly with the heart and when the evil spirit is upon you, he'll play and you'll be well. In other words, they said, there's some beautiful music, some stuff that will help you with that. All right? And so Saul said, go find one. And they found David. One of them says, there's, there's David, the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite. And, and in other words, people had heard David playing before. He was, he was very good at music. And by the way, used his music for God. What a wonderful thing to use that ability for God. And so what happened? They send after him. He comes before King Saul. And when he plays, Saul's made better. And he becomes Saul's armor bearer. That is a trusted position. It's interesting because later, you can see how much pride's in Saul because he has to ask again later, whose son is he? That's how much attention he really paid to those underlings that he was dealing with. He'd got such a prideful position, he didn't really pay attention to those who were helping him out. And that's a lesson by itself. But what happened was, David was there until this battle and this warfare started breaking out. And then it says he went back to his father's house. So David leaves the palace where Saul is, goes back to the father's house, and helps out. I think maybe, and I can't prove this, but Eliab and the other two older brothers came to the battle and maybe David was needed back home because they were gone. Somebody had to be there to help with the farm. But in any case, I want you to understand something. At an early age, you have this great love that's there and David loves Saul. And by the way, is faithful to his love for him all the way through. All the way through. And he gets to see this man he looks up to. Literally, Saul's an impressive figure. This man he looks up to positionally. This man where there's love there for him. That very man turns on him and seeks to destroy him without a cause. One of their lessons that he had learned was what it is to be betrayed and turned on by someone that he had acted in good faith towards. 
The command in the New Testament to pray for them which despitefully use you seems simple until you're despitefully used. Then we find out how much of God's in us. And then let me tell you this one. David learned to go with what was proven. Now, I mentioned Sunday school. We found out, Bethany found out, nowhere does it say there were three wise men, right? That was the revelation in our class. She's still a little heartbroken over that. But I said, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to biblically just touch on something this morning. It might get me lynched because it's so well believed. I've even made mention of it myself. I think I didn't have it right. I did. People talk about Saul wanting to wear his armor and go to battle. And we have all kinds of pictures in our mind of David trying to move around in this armor of a man who's like eight times his size. Somewhere in the archives of our pictures, we have a picture of your dad, Isaiah. I have it on my phone. Your dad left his jacket. He was helping count the money one day or helping upstairs somehow. And left his jacket up there. And uh, I picked up this jacket and I said, I wonder whose it is. And I put it on. <laughs> we were laughing and I said, Brother Carpenter's are really keys. And I had this jacket on and uh, found out it wasn't Brother Carpenter's and I sent a picture to Brother Keith. I said, is this yours? I have this jacket on. It literally comes down to my knees. <laughs> comes down like this. I can wrap it around me twice. It's just like, Daddy, Daddy, look what I found. Saul was a full head and shoulders taller than all the other Israelites. That's a huge size difference. David is not a large man by account among the Jews. And people say, Saul's helmet on, wobbling on his head, trying to move. He took two steps for the armor move. Oh, I'm going to be lynched by people. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 13, I, you can turn to it and read it if you want to. But I'm going to tell you what's there. You can check it out. Hezekiah, the king of Israel, makes a horrible decision and allows men from Babylon to see all the wealth and all the, all the things that are in his kingdom. Then they come, the prophet comes and tells them you should not have done that. They come and wipe them out and take all of them. And it says there about Hezekiah, it says it showed him, showed him all the armor in his armor in the house of his armor. Those weren't just the pieces that Hezekiah as king wore. The idea of being armed by the king and the king's armor is that the king, it's coming from his armory. It's the concept that that king holds the military paraphernalia for warfare and distributes it to people. Um... If you want to believe it's actually Saul's actual armor, I'm not going to be mad at you over it. But let me ask you a serious question. When you realize what armor and an armory is, and the Bible deals with it, the first time armor shows up mentioned in the Bible is in Judges chapter 9. A fellow named Abimelech has part of a millstone dropped on his head. He gets too close to a tower and a woman drops a chunk of millstone on his head to break his skull. 
Very simple. Uh, it, it says she's wanting to break his head. She does. He realizes he's going to die. And he asked his armor bearer to thrust him through. He said, kill me with your sword, lest it be said that a woman killed me. He did. He read about it. And uh, so, be careful when you get up close to the windows, you can get taken out. But the armory and Saul's armor, his soldiers wore his armor. Just like later Caesar's soldiers would wear his armor. And like different ones. Do you really think you take this big coat of mail, you take this helmet and all this that are four or five sizes too big and try to stick it on somebody and say, wear that out there to fight? That doesn't make sense. When you understand being armory, there's other things that open up when you understand it. Because I'm not going to go into this today, but then you start going into the New Testament learning about the full armor of God, which by the way is composite armor. You like to study stuff, study composite armor sometimes. It's kind of amazing. God's armor is composite armor. It's described as armor of light and armor of righteousness. And then the whole armor of God. When you start understanding that the king arms the individual soldier with what it's fitted to them for the battle. There's a lot to it. Now, if you want to lynch me for breaking up that mental image... You can't. You want to disagree? I'm not going to be angry at you. But this part, this part, there cannot be a question about. David made this statement when he set the armor aside. He said he couldn't go out with it. He had said to go out. He tried. He was going to try to obey the king, but he couldn't do it. That's saved is the concept. He was going to try to, but he's like, I can't do this. And the reason why, he said, because I've not proved them. Now here's the thing I want you to get. He had already proved some things. And some things were proven. And he didn't go out trying to invent something new. He said, I'm going to take what's proven. I'm going to take what's proven. I get all kinds of nonsense in the mail. Some good stuff too. But I get mostly nonsense when it comes to church advertisements. Seminars, meetings, retreats, Gatherings, all kinds of things. Pastors' education, church growth things, they all come to you. You haven't got a church. All come to you. Here's a word that was popular a few years ago. It's not being used as much right now. There's a new fad going on. You see them come and go. But here, reinventing church work. Reinventing the local church. Reinventing the music ministry. Reinventing the the purpose of couples in the church. I mean, you're nodding. You've seen this nonsense and heard it. Reinventing your position as the senior pastor. Not like I'm Mexican. Senior pastor. Amen. Uh, reinventing. I don't mind growing. I don't mind looking intelligently at where we are, what's going on in our country, what time period we live in and applying the proven truths by the proven biblical methods where they are where they're outlined when i quit using that when i'm preaching and start using this it had nothing to do with the biblical method that's something to do is i move around a lot and it's a lot easier for this to follow me around and 
Caleb's ministry of dragging me kicking and screaming into the world of modern man is partially taking effect. Doing a podcast, doing the, the YouTube stuff, that all has to do, this is a way of communication going on now. But what I'm preaching, the fact I am preaching, the fact I'm preaching from the Word of God, the fact that we do soul winning, the fact that we believe in godliness and holiness in the right direction, that is not up for debate or change no matter what's going on. And boy, we've got to get some things that are proven. Well, how do you think about this? What new way of doing that? We got a new way. Oh, we're going to do this. Hey, when I first went to Bible college, the big thing were the coffee houses, spiritual coffee houses. It's going to sound like I'm making it up, but it was this weird. Remember, bell bottoms, afros. It was a strange time. <laughs> They'd have coffee houses. They were doing that instead of churches. Now it's small group meetings, selling whatever. I don't care if you have those in addition, but you don't quit having any church. The called out assembly believers. That's why the Bible says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. To forsake is to willingly go away from. That's why live streaming can't take its place. YouTube can't take its place. Podcast can't take its place. You don't set aside. It's the assembly. There's a specific reason why God said that, and I'm not getting into all that. But here's what the coffee clubs do. you got to place a building somewhere that's new for ground, and you would paint it up with all the weirdness of that day, which had a lot of oranges and yellows. <laughs> and they would play what was the cutting-edge contemporary music of that day. That's what did it. And usually something soothing. And then they would come along so it would be non-confrontational. And no one would preach. We don't want anybody preaching at us. Instead, we'd come in with all the different Bible versions they'd have. I'm going to make it up. I'm telling you what was going on. When I was in Bible college in Houston, they called it JT. Not, not JT, the week. But JT, on Wednesday night, the students say, are you going to JT? That's cool. What was JT? Just talk. Just talk. No. I go to church myself. We go to JT. So one day I went to JT. I was going to this all about. I got to JT. It's these same doofuses I'm in class with sitting around in a circle in every state of, you know, coherency. And you had the most liberal of our, our teachers, which was saying a lot for that school. And they were sitting there and said, well, we're going to talk about this subject. Here's what it was. Literally sitting in a circle. And literally, before we started singing, they're doing things, you know, uh, I am love, I am love, I can risk loving you, because the one who knows me best loves me most. Ooh. All right? And... and <laughs> I'm talking it. This is what it was like. I look around and go, whoa, all right then. <laughs> Jimmy, tell us today, uh, we're talking about this verse. Would you read this? Okay. What, what version do you have? Okay, you have the ASV. Okay, what does ASV say? Right it there. And what do you get out of that? Well, I get it. Here's what I get out of that. Okay, and then you over here, and Bill, you've got what? You've got the NIV. Okay, which version? There's been so many differences in those. Okay, NIV. <laughs> Oh, okay. And what does that mean? Oh, and then what do you get out of that? Well, what I get out of that is this. And over here, uh, George, what do you have? I have the RSV. And what do you have over here? And what does it say? It says this over here. Literally. Phil, what do you have? Are you reading? I'm reading the King James. Why are you reading that? <laughs> I was the only one treated that way. I just snobs. Um, they. Because it's the Word of God. That's why I'm reading it. And so, anyway, they. And what do you get out of that? God is my witness. I said, it says. 
says. You better go with some things that are proven. A proven way to love people. A proven way of humility. A proven way of caring for your God. A proven way of trusting His Word. A proven way of having integrity. A proven way. You see, there's so much proof. Before we, before we get all that pressure hitting at times that is associated with growing, we better get some things proven. Find out what it's about. I'm excited about where we're going with this. Let's bring it together, all right? Father, thank You for Your words. Thank You for this introduction. I pray You'll help us, Lord, to be ready to be prepared by You. God, that maybe take seriously these different things, especially having a heart for You. Um, and the songwriter well said, Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel that within myself. Or just the coldness that comes sometimes, Lord, it's like a switch turns off and I'll be all zeal one day and just cold the next day, Lord. And you deserve better than that. Father, I pray you'll help us to follow you, be close to you, walk with you, love you like we ought to. And in so doing, may we learn how to love one another like we ought to. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, please. Something you want to bring before the Lord today. Why don't you come ahead? Why don't you come ahead? Why don't you yield yourself to be prepared by the Lord? So I've walked with the Lord for years. Okay. He's not done with you, is He? And He wants to prepare you with it. A song invitation. Why don't you come this morning?